0: Hello, this is Peter Davison. You're listening to Gallifrey Public Radio.
1: public radio a weekly podcast dedicated to positive enjoyment of doctor who we travel through classic and new episodes explore the extended universe and play a few games from time to time we do discuss news content that has been officially released and the occasional interesting rumor but we'll warn you before anything considered spoilers comes up
2: Welcome to episode 456 of Gallifrey Public Radio, where we really want to be your favorite Doctor Who podcast, but we've also been blackmailed into destroying your listening device. Oh, the conflict. I'm Haley.
1: I'm Jay. I'm Julie. And I'm Kier. This week, we have the Fifth Doctor stuck in a moral quandary and the return of a powerful adversary puppet mastering a complicated new character. But forget all that. In Modern Undead, we've got double brigadiers.
2: So, season 20 hit its midpoint with a story based on the 17th century mythical tale of the Flying Dutchman, a ghost ship cursed to sail the seas forever.
0: Yeah, but in in this story, the Doctor Tegan, and Nyssa deal with the crew of scientists who stole some Time Lord technology to forge their own regeneration abilities. Let's just say it didn't end well. So, who can help the Brigadier, of course?
3: Retired from UNIT, but now teaching maths at a school where a lot of this is unfolding, the story brings in two Briggs from six years apart in his own timeline to keep the undead scientists from using the Doctor's regeneration to give them final rest.
1: But there's a second plot to deal with here. The super evil Black Guardian, not seen since the Key to Time arc back in Tom Baker's era, has recruited a rather Troublesome schoolboy named Bissler Turlow to kill the doctor for him. Now, why Turlo, you ask? Fun fact: Turlo is not from Earth.
0: He'll be destroying one of the most evil creatures in the universe. He calls himself the Doctor. Why can't you destroy him? have the powers i may not be seen to act in this i must not be involved
1: i need time to think
0: there is no time yes or no don't send me back to earth please yes or no yes yes
2: Before we get started, we'd like to welcome back a friend of ours who has joined us for previous classic stories and knew this one had to be among them. Fresh from the executive offices of Acorn Media, Welcome back Don.
4: Hey, I'm super happy to be here. This is a, a this story is a favorite of mine and just happy to have the chance to to chat with you all about it.
0: Great. So Don, this is obviously a, a story that really appeals to you personally. So can you take us through what it is about Modern Undead that really stands out to you?
4: Well, on the purely nostalgic level because however much we may pride ourselves on our critical faculties, nostalgia is always going to play a part in why we like certain stories. And this was, you know, when I started watching Doctor Who, Tom Baker was the doctor. I mean, there was nobody else. I had, for it was a long time before I had any notion circa 1980 that there had been other doctors, that there could be other doctors, and this was one of the very first times this story seeing a- another doctor, Peter Davidson, obviously, and you know I, I and in fact I only came in at the last episode with the you know with the doctor facing this moral dilemma, which I know I'm sure we'll get to, and it you know it that it's one of those things that really just stuck with you, and also the fact that you you knew there was something wacky going on with, with time, which. You know, we we kind of take it for granted, especially post Stephen Moffat, that the that the show plays around with time, but it really hadn't done that very much up to that point. So this story was sort of sort of unique, and it's also one that, looking back on, I think you can see a lot of elements that not just the playing around with time, but there's a lot of elements you can look at and say, you know, this is all this in many ways. This sort of predicted or prefigured things that we now sort of take for granted in Doctor Who's 21st century incarnation,
1: right? Crossing one uh, one's own time stream or, or or repercussions of that nature, yeah. Or as, as Tegan would say, zap.
4: Well, even the ongoing narrative aspect of it, because you know this is part of a ends up being part of a, mo- you know, I'm sure they didn't use the term story arc back then, but you know, it's no. You know, when they released this show on D- this episode on DVD, you know, in a bunch of years back, they made a point of packaging it with the stories that followed it and calling it the Black Guardian trilogy. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was that very, you know, fairly early example, you know, in, in Doctor Who's history, late in the original run, but of that, you know, of attempting to do an interlinked storyline, mm-hmm. and and of course then following through, you know, obviously Turlo's backstory, which we learn about, you know, many episodes later. So right. I think I did that part definitely appealed to me. So,
1: so as you were, as you were viewing this, uh, you were really, so it was, it was carrying you into more and more complex science fiction constructs as far as necessarily the, the complexity or, or rigors of time travel and that sort of thing. You were, th- this was actually responsible for sort of opening your awareness to that kind of thing.
4: I think somewhat, you know, i you know, I, I certainly read my share of science fiction up to that point. I mean, we're taught you know, I was, you know, as as a teenager, so, you know, I'm I'm sure I'm not the only, you know, only Doctor Who fan of my vintage who, you know, who did their share of, you know, Heinlein and so forth. So, so yeah, I mean, I I think that it it was still, you know, even then, you know, I think Doctor Who always felt a little more cerebral than. You know, I love Star Wars. You know, I lo- You know, love Star Trek, but I think Doctor Who has always felt a little bit more cerebral, even as most action adventure oriented than a lot mm. of other, you know, things that we see in the genre. So I think, yeah, it's, there certainly is that aspect of it for me. Excellent.
3: We've learned that this story wasn't originally written to feature the Brig character, but actually Ian Chesterton as the schoolteacher. William Russell apparently didn't take the offer. So would this have had a major impact on things if he had?
1: I don't know if Chesterton would have had the same rapport with uh, Tegan and Nyssa as the Brig did. There's so- something about the the brusqueness of, of uh, classic Brig and the, you know, you listen to me, Javanka, you know, stay here while I do a little recce kind of thing was was absolute brigadier. And I don't think Ian would have had the, that stern of a hand. So I think it would have had a – you you'd have to change the dynamic of, of where they decide to stay and go and what happens when they're told to stay behind and go and
0: so forth. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something different about a, a school teacher telling you to do something and a, a military officer ordering you to do so.
2: I I remember Chesterton kind of taking that stance with Barbara and Susan, though, because he was the man and they are the women folk and they must, you know, stay where it's safe while he goes off adventuring until he, you know, gets hurt.
1: So then the question is, does Chesterton, uh, as we see the brigadier even sort of around, you know, sort of sand off the corners over the course of six years, does that mean that we would see the same sort of change in Ian Chesterson's character, I mean, I I think this is a real testimony to uh, to Nicholas Courtney in his portrayal. He sort of downplays it when he's a, when he was asked about it um, after the fact, and just said, "Well, you know, I tried to do my best to try and give something a little bit different to to what would happen after six additional years out of service and that kind of thing." And 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 he was pleased with it, but he he didn't consider it to be any any great particular work on his part. Um, he he still sort of just even. Uh, 10 15 years later he was still talking about it as things he would have done differently but i think it was masterful as far as just the subtle differences in how stoic versus how softened he had gotten even if you take the 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 aspect of his sort of a failing memory or his his lapsed memory 6 years later if you take that out of it and just take his demeanor uh, across the board i think it was a it was a very very interesting choice mm-hmm.
4: I think this is the pivotal story for the character. Honestly, you know, uh, you asked the question whether the story would be different if it had been someone like Ian Chesterton, or at one point I think Harry Sullivan was, you know, supposedly considered. And honestly, I think it would be a it would have been a much less interesting story. I mean, I think the plot would have been more or less the same, you know, but but I think there's a texture that Lethbridge Stewart brings to the to the role because. and and this is not me not i'm not trying to do a hot take here but the the thing that a lot of people cite as not making sense i think is what makes it so wonderful the aspect of lethbridge stewart the you know stiff upper lip very proper military man showing this other side Mm -hmm. is i i think just it just brings a dimension to it. it brings a dimension to the story and brings a dimension to him you know i think it's where you know when he you know he jokes about you know to the doctor, you know, yes, I know how many beans make five and, you know, you don't have to be a time lord to cope with A-levels and stuff like that. You know, it, it's, you know, he's very self-deprecating, which is, you know, Nicholas Courtney is, is you know, great at that. He always kind of had that control mm-hmm. um, around it. But, you know, you just see a different dimension to the character. And, to, and for me, it's kind of hard to imagine his, you know, he did a fair amount with Big Finish and, you know, he did, um, you know, obviously came back to the show you know i just kind of see the roots of it in this appearance really
2: hmm.
3: i think there's something to be said too for having it not be a specific companion who traveled with the doctor because the brig has always been someone who is very respected by the doctor and i think vice versa so having him be someone who's the periphery and very involved with the doctor gives you that ability to do some of those checks of who are you? How many How many times have you done this? I've seen this happen twice. And then to have Nyssa sort of turn around and be like, well, so did we, but he almost died. It, it adds a <laughs> lot of weight to the fact that it's that relationship that the Doctor and the Brig, to some extent, are relying on when they're called upon to interact with the other. Plus... Could you have believed it if there was no loss of mustache? I mean, yeah, I don't absolutely, think yeah. Ian Chesterton had the
2: mustache They would have to had to lose, put him so. in a bald cap or
1: something. Uh, you
3: know, I had
2: to look and see <laughs> if it was actually Nicholas Courtney playing the brig at first because I didn't recognize him without the mustache. <laughs>
1: uh, there's there's one additional aspect um, with particularly using the, the brig in the story, and that's the fact that the the brigadier has a a uh, that 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 stoic visage that only the doctor seems to be able to repeatedly puncture. So uh, th- th- those moments, uh, anything prior, and any appearances prior, whenever you saw the you know the that that look from behind the uniform, that 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 human, that fallible, that. Affable, that smirking kind of uh, individual behind was only seen when the doctor had just done something to, to pull that mask away for a hot second. Uh, so that's why it was great to have the, the, the two sides of the doctor because it's now it's, or I should say the two sides of the brigadier across that six year span, because now that there's those years of um, he's that whatever had taken that memory from him and the fact that he didn't recognize the doctor in '83, was just that I I recall on first viewing uh, trying to trying to wrap my head around I'm like how how in the world can he not recognize the doctor uh, by by face or by description or by uh, a, any of the the key components you know what, what, what the on earth is a TARDIS mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of a thing it hurt as a viewer I'm like you can't rob me of this you can't <laughs> retcon the Brig.
2: I, I thought they were on a parallel Earth for a second.
1: Right. It was, it was going to be Inferno all over again, right? We're going to have evil <laughs> Brigadier. Uh,
3: but you, to some extent, having it be the Brigadier makes it that much more believable because even though he's not necessarily part of Unit specifically at this moment, he still could have had something happen to him because of his connection to Unit, regardless sure. of the fact that it's on a university campus or anything else. I think that also adds to the believability right up front. Mm-hmm. because you don't know whose car it is until he walks around the corner. You're like, that's, the- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is this military? Is this, he? no, he's a teacher. Okay, so what happened to him to make him become a teacher? Let's <laughs> right. dive into that.
1: Just that alone is enough. Like, I-, I don't care about the rest of the story. I just want to know what yeah. happened to you.
3: And now. where's your mustache? Because that's how we meet him <laughs> first, is, excuse me, are you him or are you his brother?
0: No. It, it, yeah. it, it, it takes a minute for, for people that aren't as familiar with the Brigadier to, to be like, it's like, this guy looks familiar. I can't place him, though.
4: <laughs> and admittedly, when I first watched it, you know, it, I was like, you know, because he hadn't appeared in that many stories with Tom Baker. I was like, it's like, he seems familiar, but what's going on here? And then, you know, thankfully, this is where the Target novels were, you know, a huge help. And mm. you could go back like, oh, that guy, you know. Right, right.
2: Another nice thing about having the brig here is a – it's just another iteration of the Doctor that gets to befriend the Brig and continue that relationship through the entirety of the series, through generations of his family, along with regenerations of the Doctor.
1: It makes for a really, really lovely realization montage that kicks in when the, oh, uh, when, that's the so when the when the breaks, oh, uh, and you wouldn't moment. you wouldn't have that with a with a Chesterton character or even with Harry Sullivan or something like that because it's encapsulated mm-hmm. within a single era. So being able to see that span from Troughton onward is just uh, absolutely fantastic.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, Don actually alluded to the fact that we were we were going to be discussing some of these points because you just can't not. So there's the fact that we have the repeatedly referenced dangers of the Blinovich limitation effect that clearly becomes Chekhov's gun by the time we reach the final moments. But it turns out not only to be not quite as catastrophic as it was being built up through the entire story, uh, but it actually serves to be part of the solution to the, the undead problem. So does this resolution for us as viewers fall into the uh, on the side of the camp that says, ah, oh, it's just silly pseudoscience. You've got two people you know, making contact within their own time stream – Right at the very moment where this device is doing its hoobity-hoo, and we're just going to call that hand wave yum and isn't it fun? Or does it fall into the, who really cares? Because this story is so entertaining, I don't care what you're doing <laughs> camp. So it's it's somewhere on that spectrum. So where is it for each of us?
0: For me, it was definitely the uh, – thinking through – we've seen how destructive some of the Doctor's regenerations can be. And if you're trying to equal like eight regenerations worth of energy, like – yeah, if you didn't have a place to funnel in that that catastrophic effect, then yeah, it probably would have torn a hole in space and time or something, you know. Hmm. But because you had that conveniently placed, you know, funnel, the exit or the you know, pressure release valve, it worked out. So was, uh, that's always how my brain has tried to rationalize it because really it is just kind of like it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we're going to go with it because it fits. Two wrongs make a right. Yep. Mm. <laughs>
4: Well, you know, I did say I, I thought a lot of things about this story, looking back on it, prefigure what we've seen in 21st century Doctor Who. And you know, for being honest, there there've been a, it's had its share of resolutions that were, shall we say, you know, awfully convenient. Mm-hmm. And you know, which I, 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 you know, Kira, I we we were doing a panel once, and you came up with the expression that, that and I've I've come back to this many times in conversations the difference between the technical viewer and the emotional viewer mm-hmm. and where you you can say, yeah, that's that's a little bit iffy if you if you really try to drill down into the logic of it. But in in that moment, in that context of the story, you just think, yeah, that's that just somehow seems fitting. hmm And I think and I, I do think the ending is, you know, does take us into that um into that space or the, you know, the resolution of the, of the doctors were needing to sacrifice the regenerations. Mm-hmm. Of course, now who knows how many ge- regenerations he actually did have. I mean, cause that, <laughs> you know,
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
3: For me, it felt fitting enough. And I think because there was the exact moment and I think there was that recognition between the two brigadiers that they knew it was their moment. <laughs> so I, I, I'm not going to take that from them. I feel like it's very (laughs) appropriate. And I think it does a lot to explain the reason why the brigadier can't remember because he has to go back and be, you know, he has to forget so that he still doesn't remember when the future him comes back around (laughs) because timey-wimey. Somebody's
1: got to dump me on the lawn.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I think it. So it it allows that to come full circle without any other major damage or trickery to happen to the Brigadier to cause that. And I I accept it for what it is.
2: True. It's also kind of a trademark of Doctor Who to wrap things up very quickly in the last five minutes, um, regardless of how much storytelling we've had up to that point. And, you know, sometimes you see the path that led you to that last five minutes and sometimes you don't. Um, So this one at least had a trail of breadcrumbs that got us... To our last five minutes of slapdash, get this done and wrapped, so we can roll the credits. Sure.
0: Now, I will say that the most unrealistic thing about this is, that, at least nowadays, if I come across another version of myself, we're instantly going into the Spider-Man pointing at each other me. Like, it's, <laughs> I'm not going to touch fingers. That's <laughs> not how this goes i don't know
3: unless you're near eight bodies strapped to a thing and there's other people around staring at you and it seems oh, well, yeah i mean appropriate...
4: in that edge case yeah, I mean, yeah. Yes, yes. yes if you got to take your technology you know
3: any aliens around please touch me let's get out of this <laughs>
4: especially <laughs> with brains coming out
2: of their heads
3: <laughs> why are we brains too Ah, uh, right.
2: <laughs> uh, well Um, So we mentioned the regenerations, and the issue of 12 regenerations comes up in this story when the doctor explains that he's used four already and has eight left. Does that trip anyone up now as a modern viewer as far as continuity goes?
1: All bets are off now when it comes to (laughs) regeneration continuity. It's been been tossed in the dryer so many times that I don't think we can hold anything to account, but... Uh. This is like a Paul Cornell question. How would you wave your hand away Paul, and and try to make this fit now? Looking back, you know, it, it, you get oh, to man. put
0: these layers around it. The doctor didn't know at the time. You know, it's going yeah. back with with current knowledge doesn't erase what the doctor thought at the time. Doctor didn't
1: know. The Time Lords didn't know. They were all working under mm-hmm. false uh, false information.
0: Huh?
2: Well, almost mm-hmm. all of the Time Lords. Yeah.
0: Almost. <laughs> I, I think it still fits. It's just. Yeah, we we look at it differently now, but at the time it worked. But we are noticing a, a a rise in the quality of effects as season 20 kind of goes on. Like uh, there's also some changes in the music and stuff. Uh, uh, do we feel like we're we're rounding the corner on uh on like what classic who actually feels and looks like now? Yeah, the effects are notably
1: better. Um, even by the time we get to this, there, I think there was a short production break by the time they, they got around to, to filming modern. And I don't know what was going on, um, within their, uh, their workshops, but, uh, yeah, the, the effects with the exception of some of the practical elements, like the, like the light in, in Turlo's hand and, and that kind of thing, which <laughs> sorry, Mark, that you got you know, like first degree burns from the thing every time <laughs> they had to do a take with it or what happened. But, but yeah, like some of the, like the, the pulses of energy coming out of the regeneration machine back to modern and things like that was all like light years better than what we were seeing even a year prior as far as some of the visual effects. And Julia, I know you were noting with, re- with regards to the uh, Radiophonic Workshop's score, you like stopped in the middle of viewing and she's like, this is like bopping her head to it. So I'm like, yeah. like, we, we, I when, enjoy the scores, but she's like, there's guitars going on
3: in when this. When Turlo is sneaking around the ship, I his steps being almost timed, but not quite. And then he turns and it's all dramatic. I loved it. I, he's, I'm giggling. And he's like, what? <laughs> the music, the guitars. It's
1: like She's finally coming yeah. around to my way of viewing these things where I've, the where the score is like one of the characters. It's <laughs> really, like they're really hitting a stride.
4: I, I always liked the, the music to this one. I think you know, as a production, you know, I mean, you know, Doctor Who could be, well, we all know Doctor Who can be hit and miss, but I think you know because you know the BBC was almost like this sort of self-contained unit, with you know the the producer never knew for sure what set designer or you know or other technical people they were going to get. You know, I think they really you know got you know hit the jackpot in this one because like the alien ship just has a real just distinct look to it, you know, mm. you know, it's not the, the bland, you know, tech white sheen, you know, futuristic corridors, you know, cause <laughs> the, you know, nothing dates like the future in science fiction and they right. really sidestep it nicely here. Yeah.
1: Every character makes a comment too, when they see that ship interior, like, oh, the opulence of this thing.
0: Ugh. <laughs> right. <laughs> they hit it. But I mean, to, to put it in perspective, I mean, the, the. The this was a year or this was the same year that like Return of the Jedi came out. You know, we we're finishing out the Star Wars trilogy. You know, Indiana Jones was was on its like second movie coming out like and granted, these are big blockbuster movies, but like that's what audiences were coming to expect. So they really did kind of have to raise the excitement a little bit. We're, we're not tuning in for, uh, you know, for Troughton era Doctor Who anymore. They, they expected some punch. Mm hmm. The costume department still had a little bit of work to do because they were. I think
1: they were still cleaning out the archives a bit and still stealing a lot of stuff from you know Blake's Eight and a lot of other shows. Blake Seven, <laughs> Space Nineteen, Blake Seven, sorry, and I, and in Space Nineteen Ninety Nine and things like that. Yeah. They were still saying, "Well, mm-hmm. we can still use that wall panel." And ooh, is that a skirt? I think I could probably utilize that it, But <laughs> those
4: the, those alien mm-hmm. ro- that the the mutant aliens their their robes are like you know they're they feel I, like they. But- they're out of some sort of costume epic from mm. a time that we just can't even imagine.
3: I thought they were but jellyfish.
4: I, they were
0: kind of jellyfishy.
4: <laughs> I will say, I,
0: I, while the the look of them was kind of off-putting, I like the way that they, did just, they took very small steps and it almost looked like they were floating along, and I loved it. Right, yeah, because the robes were made out of foam. So they didn't yeah. actually <laughs> swoosh when they walked. They were just these right. solid objects.
3: And <laughs> it worked well for the see modern on the TARDIS kind of melted and then how he started to come back to life mm-hmm. and then his addition of clothing to switching into that, it flowed nicely into the shape that he became. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I thought for the longest time though that the the burgundy uh, overcoat that he was wearing for a little while was Baker's.
3: It, I believe was it, was it was. I, I was mean it looked like it.
1: With a flipped up collar and it was just yeah. something that he grabbed off the, off the hat rack.
3: But I liked that it sort of, when he flipped it up, it was like, oh to Time Lord, not Time Lord. Are we Wannabe sure? Time Lord. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so as close as I can come to it is just getting a, getting an overcoat with a real big collar and doing the Idris Elba flip.
3: Well, it <laughs> had to match Baker's hair, and so it went up higher than a normal overcoat, and something like that.
1: It's a big head to protect from the wind.
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> so at the end of the discussion here, how does the story do on our scale of rewatchability and recommendability?
1: Does anybody want to actually say that this is not rewatchable?
3: <laughs> so we could do a thumbs up and thumbs down, but that doesn't sound so great for a podcast. <laughs> <No
2: problem>. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, I, I can specifically say, you know, knowing this is part of a larger arc, even if that's not what they would have called it at the time, I plan to rewatch it once I know the other pieces of the story. So definitely rewatchable, definitely recommendable. I enjoyed watching it this time.
0: Yeah, it, it, it really does kind of stand out and uh, as... One of the highlights of this season, and I've I've watched it multiple times, I'm going to go back and watch it again, And, and this is kind of one of those that, like, if somebody is looking to get into Classic Who, or specifically the Fifth Doctor, I absolutely point them to this as one of the ones that they need to watch.
1: Yeah, I'd agree with that. It may not be the strongest for uh, Janet Fielding or, or Sarah Sutton, particularly. I mean, are there there are others that I would want to include in a sort of a Fifth Doctor primer set uh, that mm. would really be uh, more exemplary for for their performances. But just as far as it's a it's a great turning point for well, all of all of season twenty really is a great turning point for the way Davison has sort of worked the Doctor into being this um, the the a reminder of the of the mission of good um and that gets uh, that that touches upon sort of the the moral quandary that we were talking about the fact that he just can't even though something within him tells him well these these poor creatures they've they've paid their penance and they want to die but i can't do that to sacrifice myself and and you see that weighing on him it's really strong for for him and nick courtney is just a gem
3: i just kind of thought of this as if we take a psychological standpoint for the doctor and the dilemma he's put in it's sort of the train problem but
1: you the the trolley car or the sorry yeah the trolley (laughs) the
3: trolley problem wrong (laughs) movement vehicle uh so when you think about the trolley problem and you see he was given the choices and they kept adding things on like what's too much for it's you or them It's you and them plus this. It's you and them plus this and this.
0: So So if it's four Santas and one Shakespeare over there.
3: Uh, Yeah. So in that case, yeah.
0: Yeah. Blinovich all day long.
3: Yeah. I think it gives you a really interesting look at the, the doctor's psyche, the interaction between he and his companions, which I've spoken about before and said, I don't appreciate always the way that he treats them differently and that he's very negative towards tegan on many occasions i think in this instance and because he showed in a couple of different scenes where he cares very much about them even if he sometimes hold them holds them to a higher standard or expects more of them in certain instances and so when in the beginning tegan comes out and he's like oh just get over it it's fine he does show that he cares towards the end and would give his own life to, or his ability to be a time Lord and regenerate mm-hmm. all that mm-hmm. for them and for what that stands for. So,
4: sure. uh, and yeah. you know, Tegan's gratitude towards him at the end that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, mo- I'm, just cause I was, you know, I did take the time to re rewatch this, re- the story recently. And I admittedly kind of forgotten that moment at the end where, you know, Teagan just thanks the doctor for being willing to sacrifice that to her. And I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, you know, beautiful, quiet little moment and just played really, it's in a lovely way between Davison and Fielding. And, you know, we, we always, we think of Janet Fielding being so, you know, just such a strong, hard hitting personality, but that quiet moment is, is I think just one of her very best
1: very true. Yeah.
3: And you if you were to miss this, you would miss that. So I don't think you can skip this episode. So oh, highly sure. recommendable. All the other reasons too, but <laughs> but also that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Well, we are going to uh, sort of wrap up this particular conversation on on this, the start of the Black Guardian arc. Sorry, Haley, we're going to tip you off to the fact that, yeah, it is an arc. So, spoilers. Spoilers. Strap, strap in. <laughs> <Dope>. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, but before we do uh, walk away from the story entirely, I just want to thank you one more time, Don, for being a part of the conversation.
4: Oh, happy to be here.
0: All right, so next week we, uh, we're coming back with another Sarah Jane adventure with uh, the story three from season one of Eye of the Gorgon. Yeah. So. If, you're, if you're queuing this
1: up on HBO Max or wherever you're watching, you'd actually call this episodes five and six because they split them up into pairs, but it's the story. It's the third story. Um, I think but, it's 4 and 5. Is, yeah, it, is it 4 I think and 5? The first oh, story yeah. was an HBO hour Max long stuck the first one together. Yes. Yeah.
2: See why yeah. you got
1: it. All right, speaking on behalf of acorn media. Just Don, put them both
2: all together or none of them uh, together. What is this nonsense?
4: <laughs> what is this nonsense, Don? Why did these things happen? I'm I'm going to plead ignorance on this one. These <laughs> big big companies, they they do things <laughs> and you just sometimes you got to scratch your head.
1: Okay. I didn't know if there was some sort of a media conglomerate conspiracy for screwing up the sequencing and and numbering of
3: So I'll say nowadays they just do a longer first episode and then you get shorter ones after that. So maybe it's something similar to that where it was just- Maybe it really
2: was like a one hour premiere and then 30 minute episodes after that. I do think
4: Invasion of the Bane, I could swear that was done as like a Uh, maybe a Christmas special kind of thing, like, you know, in 2006 or Hmm. or whenever they started it. And, and then they went in, maybe went into the regular, like, I think that was like, I think invasion of the Bane, I don't know if they'd commissioned the full show or if that was like a pilot, but I think somehow Hmm. there was a gap between it and the regular, when they kicked in with the regular series. So. Gotcha.
1: Well, So upshot of the whole thing is when we start referring to stories by a particular number, um, it may not match whatever viewing service you're using. So go by the title, please, because
0: otherwise <laughs> yeah. we're we're all gonna lose each other. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been episode four hundred and fifty-six of Gallifrey Public Radio. Until next week, this is Jay saying, so a British schoolboy from nineteen eighty-three just correcting me about my quantum mechanics. Yeah, it checks <laughs> out.
1: <laughs> and this is Keir saying, making the brigadiers kiss. <laughs>
3: This is Julie saying, take it from me, boy. A solid object just can't dematerialize. Oh, here. (laughs)
2: Uh, And this is Haley saying, next week's episode of the podcast will take place in two time periods. And you'll be able to tell them apart because Julie will have a mustache in one.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And this is Don saying, I still don't know what reversing the polarity of the neutron flow does.
3: (laughs) But it works every time.
0: We'll see you next week.
3: Cheers. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gallifrey Public Radio. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or just send us a good old-fashioned email to feedback at gallifreypublicradio.com. You can also give us a phone call at 754-225-5477. That's 754-CALL-GPR, and you may hear your voice on a future episode of the show. Everything's got to end sometime, otherwise nothing would ever get started. Join us next week for a brand new episode. is copyright
3: 2022. See you next week.